invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. There are a lot of things in this world that can make us upset, that can kind of rile us up a little bit. I've seen grown men lose it when their sports team loses. You may have experienced that. You may have even done it. Curl up on the floor like a baby and cry when your team loses. It's a sad thing. But you get so much emotional involvement that you just lose it when your team loses. Or you burn your meal as company's coming over. You get upset. What are you going to do? Or you fail a test. And you're just overwhelmed with distress at the fact that you just got an F. Or perhaps a little more seriously, you lose your job. You don't know what you're going to do next. So many different things that cause us distress, astonishment in this world. But if your team loses, there's always next year. You burn your meal, you can always make another one or get some pizza. You fail the test, there's always another class. You lose your job. You can get another one. Brothers and sisters, we have only one gospel. And if you lose that, you have nothing. There's no backup. There's no other meal you can cook, no other test you can take. If the gospel gets distorted, if it gets perverted, so much so that you no longer have it, there's no plan B. We're speaking of something of eternal significance. And if we can get upset over things of temporal significance, like a sports team losing or a meal burning or failing a test, how much should our hearts get riled up when we see a gospel being distorted? There's a lot of things we can get wrong. There are even things we can get wrong in the Bible. We can get eschatology wrong. We can get the days of creation wrong, and those are worth addressing, and they are serious issues, and they are things that should get our attention. But if you get the gospel wrong, you get eternity wrong. You get heaven and hell wrong. Even in Paul's letters, You see him address churches that are dealing with sexual sin, and Paul has harsh words for them, but he still has hope for them. You see him exhorting his young protege, Timothy, to have boldness. You see him speaking to Titus to put things in order at the church of Crete. You see him addressing the Corinthians for their division. You see him addressing the Romans and the Philippians to get along together in unity. But when a church begins to abandon the gospel upon which they are founded, the sirens begin to wail, the nuclear, or the sirens begin to wail, the nuclear silos begin to open, and the launch codes are punched in. 
Paul's ready to go ballistic when the gospel is distorted. In Galatians chapter 1, we looked at his introduction last week as he basically recites the gospel, and then we get to verse 6. And there's something noticeably absent if you know the letters of Paul. When Paul writes, even to churches that are dealing with division and sexual immorality or lack of courage or division, he still gives thanks to God for them. But between verse 5 and verse 6, there's a noticeable gap. There's no thanksgiving. Paul, although I'm sure he does keep his own word and he gives thanks always in every circumstance, he does not take the time to express thanksgiving to God for the Galatians. He wastes no time in getting to the matter of the hour, which is the fact that the Galatians are being wooed away from the gospel. And so he says, verse 6 through 10, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word, and let's ask him to write it on our hearts. Father, we... Have your word open before us. It is our authority. It is truth. And we ask that you would help us to submit to it, to receive it, and to understand it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pause at these few verses to hear probably what you already know, namely that there is no other gospel. There's no other gospel other than the one you have received, assuming you've received the true gospel. But we look at this text to take heed of the warnings here. Because we live in a world with potholes all around us, with people who are claiming to have revelations from God, teachings that are in fact contrary to Scripture but are very appealing to our flesh. There is an enemy that prowls around seeking who he can destroy. And so there's all these pitfalls that would have us stumble or walk away from the gospel. I trust the Lord to keep us. If you've received the true gospel, I trust that he will keep you. But one of the ways that he does that is by warning us not to depart from the gospel that he's given us. You, I'm sure, are thankful that there are road signs and warnings Bridge out, danger, falling rocks. You take heed of those and it keeps you on the road. And so we look at a text like this and you look at the warning signs, danger, false gospel ahead, and you'd steer away from it. 
You listen to the instructions so that you can be kept safe and persevere to the end. And so in this text, I want to give you seven reasons why leaving the true gospel for a false gospel is astonishing so that you will abide in the grace of Christ. I'll give you these seven reasons why leaving the true gospel is astonishing. I want you to consider these as we go through them and take them as those warning signs, those danger signs, so that it'll keep you on the right track of the gospel. I want to just quickly address, before we get into those reasons, uh, a note of what Paul is not addressing here. Paul is not addressing what we would call eternal security or perseverance of the saints. Those are truths I hold dear and truths I would love to preach. That's not what this text is about. I very confidently hold that that Scripture teaches that if you belong to Christ, no one can snatch you out of his hand. I believe that. I believe Paul believes that. He says in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can read Romans 8. It's all over that text. Paul could run circles around us addressing eternal security and perseverance of saints. He could talk until he's blue in the face about that, but he is not doing that here because Paul is not so much a fatalist as to believe that the Lord does not use means to preserve people until the end. Paul is painfully aware that he has seen people who once professed faith in Christ depart from the very gospel that they claimed to believe. Now, there's a theology behind that, and he could explain that to us if we took the time, but for now, I want you to hear this. 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. He says, by rejecting this, referring to holding the faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul knows his theology, but Paul is a pastor with a shepherd's crook, and he has seen the Galatians begin to wander away into a false gospel, and he is taking that crook and beating them back into submission to the gospel. And that's the way he wants to preserve them. We certainly want to get our theology right, but we don't want to be so right in our propositions that we miss the reality of the people in front of us. And so as Paul sees the reality of the churches of Galatia being wooed over by a false teaching, he's not taking time to talk about eternal security. He's telling them, stay with the gospel. And so he's acting as a shepherd here. Oh, he'll have lots of theology. And we'll look at that throughout Galatians. But for now, I just want you to kind of be soaked in these seven reasons why leaving the gospel is so astonishing. That's what he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. He looks at them as turning away, deserters, or in the process of. It's not final, it's not complete, it's a present tense verb. Turning away, deserting is ongoing, it's not final, and so he is calling them back because it's not complete yet. Here's the first reason. That leaving the true gospel is so astonishing. It's so astonishing because it is personal. 
Leaving is personal. Look at what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. The astonishment of contemplating departing from the gospel begins with an astonishment not just of what they are departing from, but who they are departing from. Leaving is personal. It says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. There is a real sense in which the God of heaven looks down at people and calls them, summons them. We think of getting a call on our phone, and this is perhaps a proper illustration of having God call you. He's calling you to follow him and abide in the grace of Christ. It's very personal. God is not this God of ambiguities or generalities. He works personally in people's lives. And so he called those at Galatia to follow him. It says in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a gracious calling from the God in heaven. He summoned you out of darkness into his marvelous light when he calls you. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's calling is a calling into fellowship with Christ as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And later on in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. The calling is personal. Even though Paul was the human instrument that God used to proclaim the gospel that calls people to himself, it's still very much seen as God doing the calling. The reason that they had a connection with God, indeed the reason any of us have a connection with God personally, is because God initiated that. He calls. He calls. Here are those texts I just read to you. Romans 8.30, He also called. 1 Peter 2.9, Him who called you. 1 Corinthians 1.9, By God you were called. And then here, Him who called you. Leaving is so astonishing because it's not just as though the Galatians were going to leave propositions, to leave catechisms, to leave a church building, to leave a set of rules, to leave a book, to leave axioms, to leave systematic theologies, to leave principles or a set of beliefs. They were leaving a person. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. There's a lot of deconversion stories that are out there right now. A lot of popular people who are saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. And they say they couldn't believe the Bible anymore, or they couldn't uh, believe the church at large anymore. They couldn't go along with what the church does. And they frame it in all of these almost stone-cold facts. Make no mistake, 
This is personal. You leave the gospel, you leave God. There's a God who sits in heaven, who knows you, knows all about you. Do not think of departure from the gospel as some sterile acclamation to another set of truths. It is very personal. That's why it's so astonishing to Paul. It is effectively saying, even if you wouldn't use the words, I don't want you, God. That's what leaving is. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. The second reason that leaving is so astonishing is because leaving makes life hard. Leaving makes life hard. Now, that may be a little bit of a simplification or overstatement because life is hard. Life is hard. And following Christ is hard, in a sense. We want to be careful when we preach the gospel to people. We don't want them to say, come to Christ, your life is just going to be a cakewalk from here on out. That's just a flat-out lie. That's not what I mean. Christ calls us to lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow him. And so, clearly, in one sense, following Christ is hard. But it's not hard in the sense in which this text is referring to. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Then hear the next phrase. In the grace of Christ. The calling of God that he has personally issued to you is a calling that is just kind of in the swimming pool of Christ's grace. The calling that you have, the summons that you have from God in the gospel is a summons that is totally couched in grace. Grace, of course, is that wonderful word that just means undeserved favor. Getting something you don't deserve, you couldn't work for, you could never merit on your own. It is completely a gift to you. And this is why leaving is so astonishing because it makes life hard. You're leaving the realm of the grace of Christ and you are exchanging it for another realm that is dependent on your works, your merit, your goodness, your set of rules, your principles. But when you follow Christ, you have an offer from God to have it said, it is finished. That's what Christ said on the cross. That's grace, and that's the offer of the grace of Christ, namely that when Christ died on the cross, the entire obligation of the law was fulfilled in Christ, and all of your condemnation was stripped away from you and put on him so that you can be free from condemnation, free from law-keeping as the means by which you are saved. And when you depart from that, you make your life hard, Because now you are going to live a life that is totally entrenched in your own goodness, your own merit, your own worth, and you will never reach the point in your life that you can say, it is finished. Because it's never finished. There's always more to do. So leaving makes life hard. It says in 5.4 of Galatians, 
You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. When you go over here to your works, your law-keeping, you are exchanging grace for works. You are exchanging justified by faith through the grace of Christ with being justified by your works of the law. And if you go this way, all you will know is the condemnation of guilt for not keeping the whole law. When you leave the grace of Christ, you're leaving the one who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When you leave the grace of Christ, you leave the one who of, of whom it is said in Matthew twelve twenty, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You leave a life of grace for a life of burden. That's why it's so astonishing. Third, leaving is so astonishing because it's bankrupt. Leaving is bankrupt. Seeing leaving is personal because you're leaving God. Leaving makes life hard because you're exchanging a life of grace for a life of law. And then third, leaving is bankrupt because there really is no other gospel. This is what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. But if you want to find yourself eternally penniless, homeless, friendless, joyless, with the only thing you are rich in is sin and condemnation, then by all means, leave the gospel of the grace of Christ. Leaving is bankrupt because there is no other gospel. There's only one life preserver of salvation, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is astonished that they're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one he's quick to clarify. When the Galatians are kind of having this contemplation about the gospel Paul preached, they're not just thinking about this set of truths and thinking, you know what, I'm not going to follow that. I'm just going to be kind of neutral. They're not neutral. They're going from one gospel to a, another so-called gospel. And Paul is so quick to say it's a different gospel. But when he uses the word different, he wants to make sure his readers understand that it's of an entirely different nature than the gospel of grace in Christ. It's that word that you've probably heard, heteros. It's a totally different kind. And then he says, not that there is another one, namely that there is no other gospel that is like this one, the gospel of Christ. There's none other like that. 
There is no other gospel. So many times people want to present things that are slick and good sounding, things that have all the attractiveness of good news. They put on shiny bells and whistles and say, if you do this, you'll get this. But unless it's the gospel that Paul preached, it's bankrupt. It has no value to it. And the reason why it has no value to it, the reason why all the gospels are deficient and bankrupt is because of the nature of our situation. The nature of our situation, in case you were unaware, is this. We are lost, we are wandering, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And because we are sinners... Dead in our sins, we deserve eternal death, eternal punishment. We have rebelled against the God who made us. And we've chosen a life that denies God and his authority over our lives, and we have decided to go our own way. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God of his own will, God of his own initiative sent his son. And this is the big distinction between the gospel of grace in Christ and all their gospels. It is God's initiative, God's doing, God's work from start to finish that brings good news to fallen humanity that there is a way to be reconciled with the God on high. There's no other way that you can do it. Deliverance comes from God saying that he will do it through Christ. Christ came born under the law, kept the law, fulfilled all righteousness, died on the cross as a curse for those who were cursed by their own doings. They didn't, they couldn't earn their righteousness with God, but God gives righteousness through Christ. And the gospel comes down to this. All you have to do is you admit that you need what God has done for you. And when you admit that you need what God has done for you and you forsake all other ways of doing it, you know the value of this gospel. Why would you ever depart from this gospel and say, no, I've got one better? You know what? Christ said that it is finished on the cross. But I don't really think it was. Oh, he did a great thing. He did plenty there, but it wasn't quite enough. Every other gospel will try to add to what Christ has done. The true gospel says Christ has done it. He's done enough. Now receive it. It is good. All other gospels are bankrupt. There's nothing better. So leaving is astonishing because leaving is bankrupt. Number four, Leaving is gullible. Leaving is gullible. Those leading you astray are troubling you instead of giving you the gospel. Leaving is personal because you leave God. Leaving makes life hard because you exchange grace for works. And leaving is bankrupt because there is no other gospel. But also leaving is gullible. It's gullible because there are people who are seeking to lead you astray by perverting the gospel. Somehow, and we will look into this more in the weeks to come, the Galatians were being wooed away from the gospel, but they weren't just being wooed away because they sat in their own mind thinking about their own thoughts. They were being 
taught by other people, outsiders, about what was going on or what these outsiders thought was the gospel. So these outsiders were coming in, and Paul says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The reason that they are wooed to turning is because other people have come in and started preaching a different gospel. And it takes a certain level of gullibility to believe what these people are teaching because what they're teaching is different than what Paul had taught them. Leaving is gullible. We're all, by nature, in a sense, gullible for lies. The Galatians were falling for it. Millions in our day fall for other gospels. So many have exchanged the grace of God for such trivial things as the lighting of candles, the reciting of prayers, the giving of alms, the wearing of certain clothing or jewelry as means by which they accomplish the righteousness of God. That's, my friends, gullibility. Can you really please the God of the universe by what you wear? By the lighting of candles? By the offerings of incense? By prayers to saints, you need God on high to rescue you. And it is gullible to believe anything or anyone else can do that for you. The application to this is simply this. Vet your teachers. Vet who's teaching you. YouTube is a breeding ground for heresy. Podcasts, books are also full of heresy, of false gospels. They're all over the place. Not to say all sermons on YouTube are bad, all podcasts are bad, all books are bad. Clearly not, but vet those that you take into your life. Ask, what are they teaching? What are they teaching from? Have they decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Do they stick to the text? Do they know the theology of Scripture? Do they exalt Christ? Or do they add burdens? Do they minimize the grace of the cross? Do they twist Scripture to make it say what they want? False teaching comes through false teachers. A couple of years ago, I received a phone call from a gentleman who wanted to meet with me, as he put it, to talk about... um, churches as he was looking for churches and about Christmas. And so I set up a meeting for him to get together and uh, we met in my office. He came in with a friend and they sat down and it was supposed to be you know, a conversation. They were supposedly looking for a church, but it was very clear from the start that they were not looking for a church. They were looking to lecture me about their theology They set about trying to prove to me that Jesus Christ is not divine. And for about two hours, we went around and around on the subject, and they had these somewhat weird ideas about where the lost tribes of Israel have shown up and uh, different ideas about who Jesus is and how salvation is made. None of them were biblical. Got a little bit heated at times, and at the end of the conversation, I asked them, where did you learn these things? 
And they said, by studying the Bible. And I said, no, you didn't. (laughs) Where did you learn these things? They hemmed and hawed, and I said, where did you learn these things? And finally, they told me the organization that they had fallen into that was teaching them all these things. I don't remember the name of it, and I wouldn't give it to you if I knew it anyway. They had fallen into this line of false teachers. False teaching comes from false teachers. This is why Paul says that they are following those who are troubling them and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Leaving is astonishing because it's gullible. Leaving is astonishing also, number five, because it ignores the standard. There's only one gospel that's been preached. Verse eight, even if we But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. These are strong words from the Apostle Paul as he reminds the Galatians that there is only one standard. And the standard Paul is saying to them is the gospel that they preached to them, that Paul and his companions preached to them the first time they saw them. And that is such the standard. That is so much the the level of what they need to go back to that if anyone, including Paul himself or even an angel from heaven, should preach something that is different from what Paul preached to them the first time, They need to be accursed. The gospel preached to them the first time was so clear, so sure, so right, so biblical, so from God, that anything else that tries to add to that or take away from it is a distortion and perversion of the gospel. You have the book of Acts, you have the book of Romans. You have the book of John. You have the book of Isaiah. You have the Bible that all confirms the one true gospel. You can go back to this standard anytime you want and measure any other teaching against this standard. And you can have such surety that this gospel is so true that if anyone even attempts to preach something in addition to or taking away from that gospel that you've received from the Bible... That person who brings it to you should be accursed. Leaving is astonishing because it ignores the standard. And leaving is astonishing also because it is dangerous. Leaving is personal. Leaving makes life hard. Leaving is bankrupt. Leaving is gullible. Leaving ignores the standard, and it's also extremely dangerous. Just focus on that word for accursed for a moment. Let him be accursed. This is the same idea behind when Israel was to go into the promised land, drive out the nations before them, and they're supposed to take everybody and everything from those nations and devote them to God. They're to be destroyed. It's the same kind of concept, the same word. Let the person 
who is bringing a false gospel be accursed. Be devoted to God for destruction. Face his judicial wrath for what they are doing. This is serious stuff. It's serious because God has expressed his love through his son, Jesus Christ. He's expressed his love to such a degree that he was willing that his son should die accursed on the cross so that anybody who would come to him would not be cursed but would be saved to eternal life. And so it is so abominable to God that anyone would take a message and give it to us other than the true gospel, that the person who brings a message that does not uphold Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only means of salvation, that person should be accursed because they're effectively presenting damnation to anyone who believes them. This is serious. One translation says, let him be condemned to hell which I think is an appropriate interpretation of what Paul is saying here. If you think this is too severe, listen to Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus takes true righteousness and true salvation, seriously. God does not despise the blood of his son, and so he is not permissive of letting other people do the same, or do that, to despise his blood. When we despise the things God values, we find that we provoke his wrath, and so Paul says, let him be accursed. I had one more, but I think I'll save that for next week. There's one gospel, and it's good. Let these be a warning to keep you on that path of the gospel. Don't go looking for other righteousness. Look to Christ and him crucified, and there you find enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are willing to speak clearly to us. And I pray that we would heed your warnings in your word. And may we not stray from that gospel that we've received. Keep us in your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.